Good morning. morning. For those that don't know me, my name is Scott. And um, I I moved to Santa Maria as a church planter. We planted a church. We pastored it for a decade. And right now I'm back in school working on a master's because one day I hope to teach at the college level. That's one of the goals of my life. But one of the things that I've learned in the years of ministry that I've, I've had, and I've been fortunate enough to, to be a pastor for about 25 years now, is that there's so much more to the Christian life than just accepting Christ, showing up on church Sunday morning, singing some worship songs, and getting fed by a, a, a preacher the word of God. The Christian life is not an education. It's a life, and it involves every stage and every part of our being. There isn't a division between, well, this is the life I live over here from Monday to to Saturday, and this is the life I live on Sunday. It is one thing, and it doesn't change. It's that way every day of every week of every year. We are a whole being. And one of the things that I have learned is that we need to incorporate that idea at the heart level of everything that we do. The last time I preached, it was, um, I don't know, a month or two ago, I preached on the subject of offense. Anybody here when I preached on offense? And not living and not taking offense into our lives and then living from offense. Because it's it's one of the, the ways Satan gets into our life and destroys our relationships. It was perhaps the easiest subject in the world to, to teach on a Sunday morning, but it was a needed one. Satan has used offense to divide us over and over and over again. It's probably his most effective tool for destroying relationship. As a people, we can't afford to live like that. We can't afford to live in that kind of offense. But as with most things, we want to avoid We also can't avoid it by simply saying, I will not be offended. You can't offend me. You know what? Offense happens. It just does. It's like trying to give up chocolate by telling yourself over and over again, I will not eat chocolate. I will not eat chocolate. I will not eat chocolate. Well, what did I do? I just put chocolate in my brain. And before too long, that chocolate's going to go in me, (laughs) because that's all I'm thinking about. It's all I want, and I'm trying to avoid it with the wrong tool. Well, offense is like that. If all we do is try to tell ourselves that we're not going to be offended, you know what? All we're going to think about are all the offenses that we've suffered over the years. You can't avoid something by doing that. The only way that you can avoid something is if you focus somewhere else. What I want to talk about this morning is like that. It is a renewing of the mind. It's having a different thought. Anybody know that repentance actually means to have a different thought? The renewing of our mind that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be renewed in your mind, is about thinking differently. It's not, just, it's not about behaving differently. It's about thinking differently. Why? Because if we think differently, then we'll behave differently. The thought life comes before the action. That's why you can't tell yourself to avoid chocolate by telling yourself to avoid chocolate. Because you're introducing your thought life, and your thought life will take over your actions. When it comes to offense, the key to thinking differently is to move in the opposite direction, to think differently. It's to move in the opposite spirit. That's actually the key to restraining and renewing our minds on almost every level. What does it mean to have a a, a different thought? It means to place your focus, your thought life, in a different direction, to have a different thought about your life. Now, what would be the opposite of offense? If I wanted to move away from a life of offense, where would I focus my mind? Where would I focus my heart? 
I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> it's what I want to talk about this morning. You probably all heard and you probably all understand the concept of grace, right? Grace? Everybody heard of grace, right? We have different ideas about what grace is and what it means, but we've heard the term. It's been around a while. We tend to throw that word around a lot in the church. Basically, grace has been defined as unmerited favor. That's probably the most common definition of grace. That's perhaps not the best definition because it fails to take into account the reach of grace. Grace is so much more than just unmerited favor. God's grace moves against our sin. We are not in a neutral position. Folks, we are buried, buried in an avalanche of rebellion against God, and yet he extends his favor, his love to us when what we really deserve is condemnation. What we really deserve is death. Grace is amazing, right? But grace isn't what I want to talk to you about this morning. Ha, ha. <laughs> what I want to talk to you about this morning is going beyond grace. Well, where would that be? What would be beyond something like grace? What I want to refer you to this morning is one of the one another's in the Bible that doesn't get much attention. In Romans 12.10, it says... Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and honor one another. What I want to talk to you about this morning is honor. Actually, I just want to introduce to you what honor looks like. What living in a culture of honor would look like. You see, grace, grace loves and grace accepts you just where you are, right? Can I get an amen for that one? Okay, whatever condition you're in, grace loves you. But honor steps beyond acceptance. Honor recognizes where you're at, but it also sees where you're going. It sees your potential in Christ. It recognizes the destiny that God has placed on your life, and it seeks to call that out. It literally moves in the opposite spirit from offense. Offense builds walls. It captivates people. It makes them prisoners to the lies and the wounds of their life. But honor does the tearing down of walls. Honor moves even beyond grace in so much as it doesn't just accept you. It calls you out of that place. It calls you into the image of God that he's placed within you. There's so much that can be said on this subject. And, and in fact, I, I, I've been looking at this for a couple of weeks now because I've preached on this before and I preached it as a, as a two-part sermon. And no, we're not gonna be here for three hours this morning. I'm not gonna hit you with both sermons in one morning. But even in that, I've realized this is more like a college class on how to live with one another, on how to do relationship. And it could be taught over a, a period of eight, 10 weeks. It could be a sermon series, literally a sermon series of how to do relationship based on honor. Now, we're not gonna go there this morning. I just wanna introduce it. I woke up Saturday morning with some thoughts going through my head and I didn't wanna lose them. So I got up, I, I found my notebook and, and I wrote them down. You see, Honor is built on a foundation of love. There's no question about that. But it's not an emotion. It's not even agape love that we find in the Bible. Everybody know what agape means? Agape is what we, we commonly call the love of God, okay? But literally, agape means choice. If you go back to the original language, that's what you'll find. Agape means choice. The reason we gave it uh, the title of the way that God loves and, the, and, and why the New Testament uses it as the way that God loves is that God chose to love you, Amen. right? Sure. Romans, again, Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us in that Christ died for us. Amen. God chose to love us. He didn't have to love us. We deserved condemnation. 
We deserved punishment, but God said, no, that's not what I want for you. I want something better. And he chose to love us. But you know what? Honor is just not about loving people. Honor is actually love with a purpose attached. Not strings, but purpose. It's not random. You can't fall into honor like people fall into love. In honor, you pour love into another so that they can become all that they were meant to be in Christ. That's what you do. That's how honor affects us. Honor is not grace either. In fact, I like to call honor grace on steroids. Literally, honor is grace on steroids. That's a clever way to describe it. What it really is, it's grace with a push towards destiny. It says, I love you the way that you are. I accept you the way that you are. But I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to encourage you to move towards everything that God designed you to be in Christ. That's what honor does. Now, most of us might call that encouragement, right? Doesn't that sound like encouragement to you? But honor is not encouragement either. It, It goes beyond encouragement. It's more. It's encouragement with intentionality. I'm not encouraging you just to build you up to make you feel better about yourself. Okay? Honor says, yeah, I'm going to encourage you because that's part of what I am. But I'm going to encourage you towards something. And it's towards that image of Christ that is unique in you. It is unique to every person. But it's the same in every person in so much as it is the likeness of Christ in every person. And that's what I'm going to push towards. I'm going to look into your life and I'm going to call out the gold that God has placed there so that it can be put on display for your life and for the lives around you. That's what honor does. That's what a culture of honor will look like. Are we perfect in this? No. But it's not about perfection. It's about process. You know the Christian life is not about perfection. And it's not about you know, being sanctified perfectly, okay, in Christ. It's about process. Sanctification is process. It's about moving towards Christ-likeness. Sometimes that process can get a little bit messy. Honor doesn't mind mess, folks. One of the things that, that infuriates me about the way we do church We don't want messes. We talked about this this morning in our Sunday school class. We don't want messes. We want poopless cows, as my wife put it. (laughs) We want the cows, or the sheep, you know, because we're really a flock, right? We want that, and we want to call us all together, but we don't want any of the messes that come with it. You know what? Honor doesn't care about mess. Honor knows that messes are going to happen. It's what we do with those messes that makes a difference. Yeah, we need to clean up our messes because they're going to happen. But we clean them up with an eye to who we are in Christ. And we go through the process of restoration and repentance through the eyes of honoring one another. Like I said, I go on about this for way too long, and instead I I really want to just introduce part of it to you this morning, and I want to do that by way of showing it to you in the life of Christ. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, because as a teacher in me, I I like people to have their textbook, okay? That's just just the truth, okay? I want you to turn to John chapter 4, John chapter 4, and the story of the woman at the well. How many have heard this story preached before? Probably not from the perspective I'm going to go at it this morning. I've heard this preached in so many different ways, with so many different points. And you know what? All those points are really good and everything. But as I read this story a few years back, it, it, it was like it slapped me in the face with, you know what? This is what honor really looks like. It's an incredible story. Before we go there, can, can we just stop for a moment? I want to pray. Let's stop. Heavenly Father, This is your idea. It's not my idea, and it certainly has nothing to do with 
how I put things together. You put this together. You're the one that put it in your word, Holy Spirit. And you're the one that expects us to do something with it. Not just to hear it and tuck it away in the back of our minds, but to actually begin to investigate, discover, and live in it. Keep our eyes wide open this morning as we approach your word. And don't let us miss a thing. Because as our minds go, so do the rest of us. And we want to have that change of thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many things that we can learn from Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. I want you to see some of the hidden treasure that's buried here, though. Uh, I say that because Proverbs tells us that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to search it out. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to search it out. It's Proverbs 25. God desires for us to search out the treasures that he hides in his word. Jesus spoke in parables. Why? Because there were things just under the surface of the story that he told that he wanted us to discover. God doesn't hide things from us. He hides them for us. You get that? There is a point where Jesus expects us to step into this truth, but it is, it's a process of discovery that he's inviting us into. Consider this illustration, okay? Why do we hide Easter eggs from our kids? I'm a professional Easter egg hider, okay? When our kids were little, my, my daughter's here with us. She can testify to that. We would go down to mom and dad's ranch, grandma and grandpa's ranch, big old ranch, and we would hide Easter eggs for all the kids, and we had a, a whole group of kids. So we would hire somewhere in the neighborhood 200 Easter eggs, okay? They were all over the place. The plastic ones, the real ones, all of them. We hid them all over the place. And I was the person that was responsible for writing down where each and every egg got hidden. Why? Because if you don't find them, it's not a pretty thing, okay? It doesn't smell good, you know? And you want to make sure you get them all. We would do that. Why do we do that? We do that because we want to see the delight on our kids' faces when they find them, right? That's the whole point of hiding them, is they get so charged when they find them. When they're really young, we hide them in really conspicuous places, right out in the open, obvious, typically in plain view. As they grow older, we get a little more crafty with the way we hide them and a little more elaborate, as it is appropriate to their ability to find them. Now, what happens when they can't find an egg? Well, obviously, we start giving clues, right? You're getting warmer, warmer. Anybody do that one? You're getting warmer, you, you, okay? You realize, you know, that's what God does with us, with the truth in his word. You're getting warmer. You're getting there. You're getting there. I want to get you started on that in terms of honor this morning. Just kind of getting warmed up to it. I love the last one. If it's a snake, it would bite you. That's when they're standing right on top of it, right? Some of you might get bit this morning. <laughs> we go through this elaborate leading process. But do you know why? We do it to see the delight that it brings them when the discovery is made. They light up with joy. And what do we do? Do we say, well, for heaven's sakes... I'm glad that's over. What a waste of time that was. No. When your kids make that discovery, what happens? You celebrate with them. Your face lights up, right? You're so happy that they, they finally found that egg. You know what? That's what God thinks when we search the deep things of his word. And some of this this morning might be just a little bit deep. You might have to stretch a little bit for it, but that's okay. Because you know what? When we actually grab hold of it, God's face lights up. Yeah. And he loves it when we find it. Yeah. We need to search it out. We return glory to God when we do. Hallelujah. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out that matter is the glory of kings. Yeah. And every one of you is royalty. Hallelujah. Right? 
Okay, so we're going to do a little treasure hunting in Gospel of John, chapter 4. Takes time to dig up treasure. We're likely to get a little dirty in the process, but, you know, finding the gold is worth it. There should be a holy discontent in our lives that makes us search out the truth. Let's read the passage together. I'm going to read out of NIV this morning. So chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or about noon, okay? So it's the middle of the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from him himself? as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. As far as I'm going to go at the moment, I'll touch on some other things. This actually, this woman at the well, despite the fact that there's this little part in the middle of John chapter 4 where he has some interaction with his disciples, this thing runs almost the full chapter. And so it's, it's quite a long story. But I want to stop right there for a moment. The treasure I'd like for us to dig up today is the treasure of honor. And this passage illustrates a, a couple principles of honor. You see, honor is about vision. Vision for that other person and who they can be in Christ. Honor is about seeing that potential in another person. It looks beyond what is apparent to the world, and it sees from God's perspective the end product that God wants to produce. What is God looking for? Well, he's looking for disciples, right? That's part of our calling as believers, to go and to make disciples. Well, what are disciples? The best definition for a disciple I have ever heard is this. A disciple is a fully devoted, self-feeding, reproducing, passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I've never heard a, a description of a disciple more accurate than that. A fully devoted, self-feeding, reproducing, pa passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus commissioned us to go and to make those kind of disciples. Now, how are we going to do that? By uncovering for them their true identity in Christ. That is the process of discipleship and the goal of spiritual growth. It's not about filling their heads with knowledge about God. It's about leading them into a true identity in Christ. Amen. The knowledge will come, but it's about leading them into a true identity in Christ. That's impossible unless we see them as God sees them. How does he see them? He sees them perfected and glorified. You know we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus? Yeah. Romans is great. I, I love the book of Romans. I'm, I'm, I, I love theology, and Romans is, is one of the most theological books of the New Testament. It really is. And so it's, it's really one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's full of theology. But in the midst of that is some gold that needs to be mined by us, folks. When Paul talks about us being not just justified by Christ, but also glorified. Do you have any idea what that looks like? We have already been, that's past tense, we have already been glorified. We don't live that way. 
but we have already been glorified. That's how God sees us. We just need to step into that revelation. And that's what we're doing in honor. We're helping people to step into the revelation of who they are in Christ, which is somebody who has already been glorified. That doesn't have anything to do with their necessary behavior at the moment. It has to do with an identity. They may not be living or walking in that identity at the moment. You may not be at the moment. But it is who you are. It is who you were called to be. It is your identity. And everything else in your life just needs to begin to match up to that identity. That's what honor is. It's about calling that identity out and about helping people reach into becoming that identity. Let me show you in the passage how this is brought to the surface. First, you have Jesus sitting uh, at the well. He's in Samaria. This is not normal. Samaria is the Jewish mindset of a forbidden territory. It's a place you don't go. The Samaritan people were half-breeds. They were Jews who had met and intermingled with uh, other nations, became part Jew, part something else, part Gentile, for lack of another word. They're outcasts to the Jews. As she said, you know, why are you talking to me? I'm, I'm a Samaritan woman. You don't have anything to do with me. Why? Because the Jews literally hated the Samaritans. They're outcasts. They're unclean people. They have no place in Jewish society, even though they're part Jew. There was a long-standing hatred of Samaritans by Jews because of being a mixed-race people. The Pharisees prayed that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. At least they believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were Sadducee. Ah, that's an old joke. It's a very old joke. Man, you fell for that. Okay. John 8, 48 says the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Even Jesus got accused of being a Samaritan. That's how much they hated Samaritans. It's not an exaggeration. And yet here's Jesus sitting by a well, Jacob's well, in the land of the unclean. And right away you get a sense that Jesus doesn't see it that way. Other Jews would walk an extra day to avoid going through Samaria. Geographically, it was in the way. They'd either walk around the coastal route or they'd cross over the Jordan River and walk down the other side just to avoid going through Samaria. Jesus not only goes through, he goes to Samaria. He sits and he waits as though he belongs there. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords, bestowing honor in a land that is unclean. He didn't ask them to come to him. He went to them. I think there's a message just there to the church, right? Far too many churches have this field of dreams mentality. If you build it, they will come. We erect monuments to God, and we just expect people to show up. We ignore the commission to go to them, to find them where they're at. And Jesus functions on a different plane, a plane of honor. And Bethel Church in Reading has taken it upon themselves to do this outward focus with Jesus. They go out into the community not to make converts so their church will grow, although that happens, but rather to partner with the community in helping others achieve worthy goals. Did you know honor isn't just about how we treat one another inside the church? It's about how we treat the world around us, too. For far too long, the church has found ways to condemn the world. We're all about what they're doing wrong, aren't we? But you know how many people get saved out of protest? Yeah, it's not a good statistic for us. It's not working, folks. Would it not be better to go out into the world and find things we can agree with them on? Would it not be better to support them? You know, we talk about going over here to Fessler School and ministering to people there just by our presence, right? Sure. One of the, the visions Chad has for us to reach out. Taking that idea with honor 
to call out the best in the teachers there, the best in the staff there, and ultimately, yes, the best in the children. How do we do that? We get rid of the expectation that they should be anything like a Christian, and we accept them where they're at so that we can begin to love them into a real identity. Enough of that. What we do in honor has to be lived out in a way that that field of dreams mentality ends. Because otherwise, this is, this is as far as it goes. You know, it's not going to get past the four walls here or however many we have. The world only bestows honor after the fact, folks. It's really not hard to honor somebody who's done something very honorable, okay? Somebody who's achieved great things. It's really not too hard to honor that, right? That, that, that's kind of how, when you, we take the Smith-Barney approach. You get it when you earn it, okay? That's the Smith-Barney approach. When they clean up their act, then we'll honor them. That's how the church has treated the world. But that's not how Christ did it. He went to them right in the midst of their uncleanness to call them out of that by honoring them. You know, personally, I'm grateful God didn't wait for me to get cleaned up before uh, he allowed me to come into his presence. I came a mess, just like probably all of you. And you know what? I still make some of those messes. Yeah. But God places so much worth on a human soul that he would actually shed the blood of his son to see you freed from the messes that you make. Honor is about going to places that really aren't too nice. Places we may not agree. Places that we would generally oppose sometimes. And instead of doing that, look for the gold. Find what's buried there and begin to call it out. Jesus is sitting by the well. It's about noon. He's hot, he's tired from the journey, and he waits. And in the heat of the day, a woman comes to draw water. Now, right away, there's something wrong with this picture. Women don't draw water from the well in the heat of the day. They don't do that alone. They come in the morning, they come in the evening, they come as a group. It's, it's like a social event. This woman is there in the middle of the day and she's there alone. She's not welcomed in the social stratus of that town. She's an outcast among outcasts. If the Samaritans are unclean, then she's filthy. What's more, she's really quite aware of it. Listen to her response to Jesus. The woman said, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You can almost feel the shame in her words. She knows she belongs to a race of outcasts. Moreover, she is the only woman there, which puts her a peg lower on the social ladder. More than that, she knows that deep inside just what kind of woman she really is. And she suspects at the noon hour, he is not unaware of her social shame. Dan and I were listening to a, a sermon from a man whose primary supposition was that people make one-time commitments to the Lord and then they fall away because they're never told about their sin. He claimed that if we could convince them of their sin, then they would remain faithful because they would understand the depths from which they were delivered. Does it kind of make sense, right? As it is, people are not interested in Jesus because they don't see the need to be saved. And although he has a point, there are at least two things wrong with this thinking. First, believe it or not, most people do know the depth of their sin. They really do. I've yet to encounter anybody that didn't realize, uh, I make mistakes. 
Now, a lot of people are deceived into thinking that the good things they do outweigh the bad things that they do. You know, that, that's a common misconception. But they're quite aware that there are some things in their life that don't measure up. Most people are only hoping that they're good enough to get into heaven. They know they're sinners. The second wrong part of that thinking is knowing the depth of your sin. If it keeps you to faithful to God, if knowing the depth of your sin keeps you faithful to God, it only does so out of a suppressed, wretched, demeaning posture perpetrated by feelings of guilt, unworthiness, and shame. That is not the abundant life that we are called to. That is not grace. That is not honor. We are called to live a life of honor as a royal priesthood before God. A royal priesthood before God. Jesus takes this opportunity to lift this woman from the depths of her wretchedness. Watch how he does this. First, he asks her for a drink, right? Jesus said, will you give me a drink? Now, think about that for a minute. Here is an outcast among outcasts. Can you imagine a room full of people and Jesus walks in and asks for a drink? What if Jesus walked through the door here? I'm thirsty. I'd like a drink. Which one of you wouldn't get up and run for a drinking fountain, a cup, or something, right? Okay. We would be all over ourselves trying to figure out how to get him a drink of water. Is there a higher more prestigious job description than to be the servant of the king of kings? Look at the elevation he has brought her from in one sentence. Would you give me a drink? Now, she's not quite aware yet that that's what's happening. She's functioning on a different level at this point. But you know what? She's going to get there. She's just been given the opportunity of a lifetime to actually serve the Messiah. Consider the honor that that bestowed on her. The only honor she understands at this point is, wow, this is a Jew and he's talking to me. That in itself is significant. But honor is about calling out that gold in another person's life. It's about seeing their potential in Christ. It's about encouraging them in it. Now, parents, it's about recognizing the heartbeat of your child, their interests, their passions, and encouraging them in those things. You know, so, so much of our parenting revolves around trying to get our children to obey the rules. You know, there's a set set of rules in this house. There's a set set of rules over here in society. And we want you to be successful in your life, so we want you to obey the rules, right? Do you realize how unattractive that is? If you don't, ask your teenager. They'll fill you in on just how unattractive the rules are. What if instead of focusing a life on rules, we focused a life on identity? We focused a life on calling out that identity in our children. Some of you get that. Some of you get that. And it's important because what we're doing is we're speaking honor into their life. As I was researching honor, because I would really love to, to write a paper on this one. Um, probably not my doctoral thesis, but at least a paper on this one. Did you know that honor is used in the Old and New Testament just as much? It, it, it's in both texts, both, quote, dispensations, okay? Old and New Testament. But you know what follows the word honor more often than any other statement? Father and mother. It's in the Decalogue. It's in the Ten Commandments. That's what the Decalogue is, okay? But it appears in so many other places in Scripture. Honor your father and mother. You know why? Because if we don't learn it there, we're not going to take it out anywhere else, right? If you don't learn it there, you won't take it anywhere else. Guess what, folks? If you don't learn how to honor one another in this house, you won't take it out there either. You won't. Why, do, why, does, why does the New Testament say that... that uh, your leaders, your pastors, okay, deserve double honor. Is it just trying to, to promote them? Is it just trying to make them, put them up on a pedestal? No, because servant leadership is from the bottom up. So that's never the case. 
Honor is about calling out the gold and the destiny in another person. Double honor is doing it harder, doing it better. And that's, folks, what we're supposed to be doing for Chad. Get that? Everybody say yes, Scott. Okay. We are, as a people, to be honoring double honor to those who lead us. Why? Because if we don't, they're not going to lead us where we need to go, right? They need to be in submission to God even more than us because they're leading us. They need to be forging that path, and we need to be showing double honor in order for that to happen. Okay, how much time do I have left? Oh, wow, five minutes. Okay, um, I'm nowhere close to the end of this, but we're going to, okay. You say, Scott, well, what if my, my kid has a passion for something I don't really want him to have a passion for? What if he likes motorcycles? <laughs> Worse yet, what if he likes trucks? My boy likes trucks. Awesome! Who said being a truck driver for Jesus isn't a great job description? Who said that? You know, we've already established that, you know, getting drink, a drink of water for Jesus is something incredible. Wouldn't delivering a truckload of water to Jesus be even more awesome? Yeah. We have these weird ideas. Listen, folks, we need to get over our good selves. We've divided our lives into, into the sacred and the secular. For those who believe there is only one priority, and he is God. Colossians 3.23 tells us to work as unto the Lord. There isn't a secular job out there for you. There's only sacred. There's only sacred. Whatever our children do, whatever their passion is, make sure that we lead them to do it. In Christ. Okay, this woman doesn't get it. She's just got the biggest job promotion of her life. Not there yet. He gives her permission to ask of him. Jesus says, hey, if you knew the gift of God that was standing in front of you, you would ask him for living water. Okay. You know, it's one thing to serve. That's a great honor. It's another thing altogether to be served. See how Jesus is moving her along this pathway of honor? Okay, you can get me a drink, but if you really knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. You'd ask me for a drink, and I'd give it to you. He sees her as she really is. She's not this wretched gutter snipe of an outcast. She's a precious creation. She's a daughter of royalty. She's a child of the king. How different for our world would it be if the church, the people of God, made it a priority to see those around us, even those who are not believers, folks, as they were truly meant to be. Right. Instead, we tend to see them as pond scum. We tend to leave them there rotting in their sin. Do you understand that when we do that, we judge them? It's as though when we got saved, we got amnesia. We forget that there but for the grace of God go I. Yeah. <laughs> there but for the grace of God go I. And there with the grace of God do I need to go. The church can't be selective about the places where it ministers. It can't just choose to minister in nursing homes and prisons and shelters and projects. It's got a minister on the street. It's got to minister to the neighbor next door. It's got to minister to the people that you wouldn't agree with. It's got to minister to the people who hate you, the people who despise you, the people who would rip you apart. We're still called to them. Why? Because we were called to love them. You, you, you do remember that the Bible says to love your enemies, right? Yeah. Look, I know we're all really busy and, and, and Going out into the world seems like another thing that we need to add to the list. My life is busy. That's like yours. You know, I work as a general contractor to make a living. 
At night, I work as a student in pursuit of my master's in theology. I teach Sunday school, and sometimes I, I do this. Sometimes I preach or I do music for a church here or there. Somewhere around those things, I also have to be a husband and a father and a grandfather. I just had a birthday on Friday. E, getting old. We can invest in one or two lives, though, can't we? Maybe more. We don't have to adopt every school in town. Fessler's available for the taking. And the door's open. Look, here's the truth. Jesus didn't call us just to come here on Sunday morning and sit and soak. He called us to go out there to stand and serve. We have opportunities all around us. And I don't know what your vision for outreach might be, whatever. And I don't have time to finish this sermon this morning. So I'm just going to kind of boil it down really quickly for you. I hope to put this together as a Sunday school class. So I want you all to come. Okay, because uh, literally there's, there are weeks of, uh, of things that we need to talk about. One of, the, one of the, the greatest things about honor is how we do rules in the church. And what does that mean to church discipline and all of those other things that go along with what happens when somebody makes a mess? Okay, what does honor do? All of those things are wrapped up in this concept of honor. And it's so much bigger than this one little sermon. In fact, it, I, I, I'm not even going to get to the other part of this that I so desperately wanted to get to, which was what happens on the other end of this conversation. The woman at the well literally, folks, literally becomes the first evangelist to the Samaritan people. He calls her so far out of the muck and the mire of her life out of being not just an outcast, but an outcast among outcasts, that she turns around, she runs into town and says, hey, come, I want you to meet a man who just told me everything about my life. And they come, and guess what, folks? By the end of John chapter 4, and you can read it for yourself, by the end of John chapter 4, they looked at the woman and said, we don't believe now just because you told us that he knew everything about you. We believe because we've come and we've heard. And he stayed with them two days. He lived in the land of the unclean with them for two days. And many, according to the scripture, many came to believe. There's so much more to this I wish I, I had time to share this morning. Everyone, everyone, everyone who drinks of this water will have a well of water bubbling up inside. I want you to drink from the water. Honor's not a difficult concept to grab a hold of. It's about seeing the potential in another person's life and speaking into that in whatever way that you can. Honor's not about what you get. It's about what you give away to someone else. Unfortunately, in teaching the, co the concept of honor in the church, we've had people come back to us and say, that person didn't honor me. Oh, you missed the point. It wasn't about them honoring you. It was about you honoring them. It was about what you give away to them. But honor, like everything else, is reciprocal, folks. When you begin to honor, honor returns to you. When you begin to love, pure love, love returns to you. Honor is like that. You can't out-honor God. He will always return it to you. It's about stepping into God's call in your life so that you can help others realize their destiny in Christ. Where that vision takes us, if anywhere, well, is up to what we're willing to do about it. That's the bottom line. In the meantime, I want to challenge you to pray for just one thing this week. Can you do that? One thing. Out of all the things that I might have said this morning that might have tweaked you a little bit, I want you to think about this and pray for just this one thing this week. Pray and ask God for a vision, a vision that will move you into your destiny as a person of honor. What, is that, what does that mean? It is literally what the woman at the well did. After being raised out of her outcastness, she ran into town and shared with other people. She literally became that first missionary 
to her own people. What is the vision for your life? Pray and ask God, how would you see me as a person of honor? What would that look like, God, for me to be this person of honor? For me to see other people through your eyes instead of my own? We have such limited vision. We are so horizontal in our vision. We need to be given some vertical vision here. Vision that comes down from God through us to other people so that we can call out the gold that is in their life. And by call out, that's, that's not a challenge, okay? That's an encouragement to move into a destiny. A person that draws out the God potential in other people is an honorable person. Because they're an honorable person. It doesn't matter what that other person looks like. They don't have to be honorable. You call it out because you're honorable. So what does it look like for me to become that person of honor? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, thought, I know this was an awful lot for just throwing out there on a Sunday morning. And it needs to have so much more attention. But Father God, I think the seeds that get planted this morning in our hearts, if we are, if we are faithful, to just pray that one prayer, Father God, and ask you, what does it look like for me to be that person of honor? What does it look like for me to see others as you see them? To call out the gold that you've placed in them. That's a, that's a great first step. It's a great move towards being a culture of honor in this place, in this house. But Father God, I pray that we take it seriously and that we move toward it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and, and you made a, a decision to become a different person, perhaps, or at least to, to try, and you want to talk to somebody, the prayer team's going to be down here, and come down, pray with them. Most of the prayer team has been hearing this thing about honor for a couple of weeks now because they're in the back with me, um, and they can help you. If you want to talk to me, I'll, I'll, I'll be here. I'll be available as well. I want us to grab onto this, folks. I want us to grab onto it in a way that means we start practicing what it is and, and who it is that we are. Amen?